All right, today what I'm going to do, I'm going to teach on, um, from John chapter 14, and this is a part of what I call my Christian survival kit. Let me give you a little background on this Christian survival kit. Don Crow and I uh, had a mutual friend who we led into the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and this guy got really uh, radically baptizing the Holy Ghost. He got so turned on. I mean, it was awesome. And then about, I'm not sure the exact timing, but six months or a year after he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he was diagnosed with cancer. And we started ministering to him about healing and how God wanted him well. But this guy, he was so in love with the Lord, really. He says, I don't care whether I get healed. I'm just ready to go to be with the Lord. And so he wasn't fighting real hard. He was, he was really excited. He was about 60-something years old, early 60s. And so, anyway, he progressed, and it got worse and worse and worse, and, and I got a call one day, and he had been in New Mexico, and he got so bad that they put him in the hospital and said he had never lived through the night. And he lived for, uh, I think it was six days or seven days in a hospital in New Mexico, and finally they said, we don't know why you're still alive, but you might as well go home. So he rented an ambulance and came home. And when he got home, his wife called me, and said that he was so weak that he couldn't even hold the phone, he couldn't talk, he was uh, hardly able to breathe, and um, that uh, he just wanted to call and let me know uh, the situation. And so I had her put him on the phone, she held the phone up to his ear, and I told him, I said, don't you dare die until I get there. And I got Don Crow, and we went over, and we started ministering to this guy. And over the next... I don't know, two or three months, we went over to his house every day or sometimes every two days or something like that, and we just begin to spoon-feed this guy the Word of God and build him up and encourage him how to believe. And the guy got to where he was up walking around and uh, eating, driving a car, and was doing really good. And this went on for like six months. For a few months, we went over nearly every day. And eventually, the, the long and the short of this story is that eventually this guy, after six months... I was going over there one day, and the Lord just told me, he says, uh, you know, he's quit, and he's going to uh, die. And immediately, my, that's what I thought, and I thought, this can't be God. And I went to kind of resisting those thoughts, but they just persisted. And so I got to listening, and I thought, you know, this could be the Lord. So instead of me going over and just pumping this guy and telling him what to believe, I went in, and instead of saying anything, I just got to asking him questions. And basically, he told me, he says, you know, I'm ready to go. He says, I'm, I'm, I don't want to fight and do all this stuff. He says, I just want to die and go home. And so I didn't say anything. And then I told his wife, I said, you know, it is God's will for him to be well. And he's improved. You can see the healing power of God. But I said, it really is dependent upon him. And he's tired and I think he's quit. And you can either sit there and force the issue and make the last days that you have with this guy bad or you could just sit there and rejoice in the fact that he knows the Lord and that he's lived a productive life and rejoice with him and let him go home. Well, she rebuked me for my unbelief and got on my case. You aren't standing in faith and he's not going to die. And so anyway, I didn't have many options then, so I just went along with it. The guy eventually died when we looked at his diary. On that exact date, he had written something in there about it. He says, I'm going to go home, but he says, my wife doesn't understand, nobody else understands, so I'll go through the motions for them, but he says, I'm going to go home. So it was exactly the way the Lord told me. But anyway, through all of this, as we went over, this guy was so weak, he couldn't even hold the phone, he couldn't do anything, 
And we just started pumping the word into him. And we saw the word of God work so that this guy was up walking around, eating, driving. I mean, he was, he was just really, really doing good. And his wife came to me one day and she says, you know, you and Don need to do something and take all of these things that you've been saying and teaching him and you need to put it in a form so that people, you know, it's like a Christian survival kit. How do you deal with a crisis situation? And you need to take all of these things that you were talking about and just put it in a form so that people, you know, like if you get a hurt, you have an emergency medical kit or something that you go to to help yourself. He says, you need a Christian survival kit. So anyway, that's where all this came from. And I got to thinking about that and saying, Lord, you know, these are just things that Don and I have gleaned from our walking with the Lord for, uh, you know, many years. And where do you find all of this condensed in Scripture? And it wasn't long after that that I was reading in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. And this is the night before his crucifixion. And the night before he was crucified, of course, the disciples were entering into the hardest time of their entire life. They did not understand what was taking place. It looked to them like Jesus was defeated. And Jesus, just in little capsule-type form, took and told them... I mean, this had to be uh, some of the most important things he could have ministered to them because they were about to enter into this trying time in between the crucifixion and the resurrection. In John chapter 16, verse 1... He says, these things have I spoken unto you that you might not be offended. And if you put that together with Mark chapter 4, it says that when you get offended is when Satan steals the word out of your heart. So he spoke these things to his disciples so that they wouldn't be offended, so that the word would work, so that they could have been rejoicing and still operating in victory in between the time of the crucifixion and when they saw the physical manifestation of the resurrection. And so these were critical things that he was sharing with them for the purpose of helping them to stand in faith. And as I got to reading through it, did you know that this was exactly the same order of things that we had been sharing with this guy? And I went through there and it just amazed me. And uh, so anyway, what I did was take John 14, 15, and 16, and I believe that Jesus was basically telling his disciples what to do. Boy, when it looks like that all hope is gone, like you are about to die, like nothing is working, what do you do in a crisis situation? And he gave his disciples these keys that if they would have followed through with it by his own admission, John chapter 16, they wouldn't have been offended. The Word of God would have still been working in them. And so I want to just share this with you, and uh, we're going to go through a few of these this morning. But in Luke, I mean in John chapter 14, verse 1, this is just powerful. And this is exactly the same thing that we ministered to this man. This man and his wife were just totally panicking. Their emotions were out of control. Uh, they had fear running rampant in their life when we first went over there. And the very first thing that Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Amen. Now, you know, this is really simple. And it, and it should be obvious. And yet, I believe that most Christians totally, totally miss this point. Did you know that the average Christian, when they come into a crisis situation, will tend to respond about the same as an unbeliever does? They allow their emotions to go wild. They get into fear. They get into unbelief. They panic. They do all of these kind of things. And then after... All of these negative things have happened in their life. Then they go to the Lord and then they start seeking and trying to get through these things and to overcome their emotions. 
But the very first thing that Jesus told these disciples, he says, let not your heart be troubled. And if you were to diagram this sentence, you know, the way we had to do when you were in school doing English stuff, you would have to put you as the understood subject of this sentence. In other words, he's saying, you let not your heart be troubled. And you know, this is something that most Christians do not believe. Now, hopefully this group right here has been taught the word and I'm, in a sense, preaching to the choir, but you can't hear this too often. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But you know what? You have an ability to control your emotions. You can choose how you want to be. And in my estimation, I believe that if you allow your emotions to run away with you and get out of control, it's nearly impossible to rein those things in once you've let them get away. If you've ever seen my teaching on uh, harnessing your emotions, which eventually that teaching on harnessing your emotions is a three-part series based on the first point that I'm making right here. I taught it, first of all, in this Christian survival kit, and uh, it just began to minister to people so much. I meditated on it. We expanded it. I think now it's a four-part series on harnessing your emotions. But uh, in that teaching, when I was talking about your emotions, we had a cartoon drawing of a horse that was running away. The saddle had come loose. The saddle was down on the underside. The guy was hanging on from the underside around the neck. The horse was totally out of control running away. And the reason I use that drawing to illustrate this is because that's the way emotions are. If you allow your emotions to run away, it's nearly impossible to rein them in. I don't know how many of you have anything to do with horses. But uh, again, Don Crow, his son, Stephen, when he was seven years old, came out to ride my horses. And I taught him from the Word, James chapter 3, how to ride a horse. And my horses were basically wild. They were green, broke. I kind of liked them that way. I hate these old trail horses that you get on and they just stick their nose in the rear of the horse in front of them and you walk around. Man, I wouldn't pay anybody to do that. I like a horse that'll do something, that'll run and jump and do things. So anyway, my horses were semi-wild. And when Stephen was only seven years old, he came out to ride our horses. I took James chapter 3 and I taught him how to ride a horse from the Bible. And did you know he followed my instructions and he rode that horse for nearly two hours, no problems. Right after he left, a guy who was about 25 years old, had just gotten married, came out there. And I was going to give him instructions how to ride the horse. But he had his wife with him and he was going to show off for his wife. And oh, I can handle it. And Within 10 minutes, this 25-year-old was on his way to the hospital. I mean, my horse nearly killed him. And Stephen, seven years old, had just been riding him for two hours and everything was fine. And one of the points that I was telling uh, Stephen is that, you know what, don't ever let this horse take advantage of you because it's easier to stop a horse from running away with you than it is once a horse runs away. It's near, The best thing to do if a horse is running away with you is jump off <laughs> as soon as possible. I mean, you aren't going to, unless you're a good horseman, you aren't going to rein a horse in once it's run away. It's a stronger animal than you, and you just aren't going to do it. It's a lot easier to stop it from getting started than it is to stop it once it's already run away. And anyway, that's the way it is with emotions, and I believe that this is what Jesus is saying. The very first thing when a crisis hits you is you better grab hold of your emotions. You better control your emotions. Once your emotions get away, once you indulge fear, once you indulge anger, once you start operating in panic and doing any of these kind of things, for the average person, unless you're really strong in the Lord, you know what, you just need to run to a neighbor and get them to pray for you and help you because you are out of control. 
It's not going to work. And unless you can control your emotions, I don't think you are going to see real success in a crisis situation. And again, I could go a totally different direction with this, but over in James chapter 1, the scripture there talks about that in your desires or emotions is where lust conceives. And it's using this terminology like when you have a baby. You have to conceive a baby. Storks don't bring babies. You know what? You have to conceive them. And everybody uh, wants to stop the birth of negative things. They don't want what fear is going to produce in their life. They don't want what anger and bitterness is going to produce in their life. But there's very few Christians who will stop the emotions of those things. They think that uh, not acting out the action, you know, in other words, you might harbor unforgiveness in your heart. You may be bitter at somebody, but you just don't want to act it out. You don't want to actually say it to them, but you will allow your thoughts to go there and you will meditate on things that conceive all of this stuff. And then when the birth starts to come to pass, you are white knuckling it, resisting and rebuking the devil and saying, no, I'm not going to do this. And you wonder why the Christian life is so hard. It's because you conceive the thing, first of all, and you're having to have like what you know I would call a spiritual abortion. That is not the way that God wants you to live. You've got to stop the conception. You have to stop the emotions. If you allow your emotions to run wild, then you've had it. As a general rule. Now again, I mean God can do anything, but the odds are that you are going to lose it if you allow your emotions to get away from you. And so I believe that that's exactly the very first thing that Jesus said right here. This is the first thing I said when I went and ministered to this man. I sat there and told his wife and him and Don and I started ministering to him and saying, Look, it's not a hopeless situation. Grab hold of yourself right now. You don't indulge these fears. Don't take what the doctors have said as being an absolute and meditate on those things. Don't allow yourself to go there and start having pity and grief and seeing yourself dead and thinking about what it's going to be like when I'm dead and what are they going to do to my funeral. If you start thinking that way, then all of these things are conceived in your emotions. I tell you, to me, this is critical. And this has become a uh, foundational truth in my life. And, of course, you've heard me talk about this, but when my son died... And we were called, my oldest son told me that he had died. The very first thing we did was stand and believe God. And we had to get up, get dressed, head into the springs. And on the way in, you know what? I started having emotions just like anybody would if you heard that your son was dead. And I started having negative emotions. I started having grief and sorrow and confusion and all these kind of things. And I don't like them. And based on these exact things that I'm teaching right here, you know what, I just said, I am not going to indulge these emotions. I'm not going there. And so I started praising God. And I couldn't just do it on the inside in my thoughts. I started doing it out loud. I started praising God and worshiping God and thanking God. And as soon as I started grabbing hold of my emotions and controlling them, immediately faith rose up. Immediately God brought back to my remembrance prophecies. And the scripture says that you wore a good warfare by the prophecies that have gone before on you. And I began to start meditating on that. And you know, it is my personal opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. Usually has a couple of holes in it. I can't necessarily prove that this is true, but it's my perspective that my son back here, Jonathan Peter, wouldn't be alive today if I would have indulged those emotions, if I would have allowed grief, fear, sorrow, confusion, and things like this to function in my life and then try and rein them in later. That's not how it worked. 
You have to grab hold of yourself. You know, one of the ladies that works in our television program, I was using that illustration a few weeks ago when we were making television, and her husband just died a year, well, Dean and Linda know him, uh, Mike Bean, but he died a year and something ago in January, and Karen came to me and she says, you know, I've been asking God about why we didn't see him raised from the dead, and there's no condemnation or anything in this, but she said of her own self, she says, as you were talking about that, she says, I realized that at first I let panic and fear grabbed me, and she said, I indulged those things. And it was hours later when she started trying to grab hold of herself and believe God. But she said when she first heard about it driving from work home, she said she just allowed panic and fear. And she said she thinks that that's one of the reasons that they didn't see that manifestation. You know, again, we're second-guessing. I don't know all of the answers why everything happens, but I believe that Jesus was saying... Let not your heart be troubled. That's the very first thing he told his disciples. And see, some people think, well, that's fine as long as it's not really, really bad or a super crisis situation. You know, as long as it's a hangnail, I'm going to try and maintain my joy. And I'm not going to let this thing get to me. But then if it's something like somebody dying or something, there's people today that would sit there and say, you're in denial. You just aren't facing reality. The truth is there's certain things that should shake you up. Well, look at this. Jesus was talking to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And it says in the 13th chapter that Jesus knew all things that were going to happen to him. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He even prophesied that Peter was going to deny him and uh, swear with an oath that he had never seen him before. Jesus knew what was coming, and yet here he is telling his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. This wasn't a minor deal. They were going to see him crucified. It was going to look like Jesus was powerless to be able to overcome the opposition. They had hoped, and of course there's many times that they said this, they actually thought that the first coming and the second coming of the Lord were run together. They expected Jesus to establish a physical kingdom, to overthrow the Roman rule and establish a physical kingdom here on the earth. They didn't understand what was happening. And from their perspective, when they saw Jesus condemned and then just hanging there like the common thieves next to him from the outside, if you were only looking at it in the physical realm, it looked like he was powerless. It looked like he, didn't, uh, like he was defeated. And between the crucifixion and the resurrection, all of these disciples were just totally defeated in this thing. And so it was a crisis situation. It was something that I believe would overwhelm anything that any person in here has ever suffered. Regardless of how bad your crisis situation is, basically it's an individual thing. This is something that their hopes of the whole world were hinged on Jesus. It looked like that... Uh, you know, the whole plan of salvation was in jeopardy, that it didn't work. And they had given up their life um, work. They had given up their profession. They had left families. They had suffered ridicule. All of their hopes were hinged on Jesus. And here he was crucified. You know, most people would think, well, you couldn't help but just feel defeated or depressed. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. And let me say it this way, that you know what? He would be unjust to give you a command and to make, command you not to let your heart be troubled if it's something that you can't do. Amen. The very virtue of the fact that he says, don't let your heart be troubled, says volumes. It says that you have the ability to control your emotions. You are not like an animal. You, weren't, you haven't evolved from something. 
You were created in the image of God. God has given you the authority to control your emotions. And this is totally contrary to the wisdom that operates in our society today. Psychology has come in and basically reduced us to an elevated animal that is just chemicals and we respond to circumstances and situations. And they will sit there and tell you that if somebody does this to you and if you don't react a certain way, you're in denial. And they're telling you that you're just bottling this up and all of these things are seething on the inside of you. And you've got to vent and you've got to let these things out. And psychology has had a tremendous influence even on the Christian community. But Jesus is saying, don't let your heart be troubled. You have authority over your emotions. You can choose how you want to feel. And this is in every situation. I don't believe that any of us are going to face a situation that is as severe as what the disciples were going through right here. And if he could tell them, let not your heart be troubled, then you can keep your heart from being troubled. You don't ever have to just fall apart like a $2 suitcase, amen, and let your emotions run away with you. You can control yourself. Well, many of you say, amen. I believe that. You don't do it, but you believe it. Amen. (laughs) You know, I don't know how to get this across, but there's a lot of people that sit there and shake their head. And yes, this is, and yet you're like a yo-yo up and down emotionally. Something's wrong with this picture. If this is true, what we're talking about, if Jesus is not unjust, if he's not commanding his disciples to do something that's physically impossible, if this is possible, and he's telling them, don't let your heart be troubled, then why in the world do we have the emotional highs and lows that we go through? Why is it that when something negative happens, we feel justified in being upset or angry? It's because the Bible isn't really our standard. You know what, most of us look around and kind of take an average of people and we just try and live somewhere around the average. Many of you would feel like, uh, you, you know, you are just totally weird if you were to live what Jesus is saying right here. I get a lot of criticism because I don't respond to stuff the way that other people do. And you know what, I may not... I'm not the perfect example, but I'm saying to the best of my ability, I'm trying to live what the Word says. And I get criticism because I don't get upset and things don't bother me. People think something's wrong with you. And I even have other ministers sit there and say, people can't relate to you because you sit there and present yourself as if you don't ever have these things. You know, my own son, Peter, here a few years ago, I can't remember what was happening, but we were talking about something and... uh, I just said, yeah, inside I was so angry I wanted to punch their lights out. And he just looked at me and he says, no. And I said, yeah. I said, I I feel the same thing everybody else feels. And he says, no, you don't. (laughs) He's never seen me angry. He says, I don't believe that you ever have been angry. And I said, I guarantee you, I have anger. I've just refused to let it dominate me. And my own son, 30 years old, was saying, I don't believe you've ever been angry. People sometimes think that I'm not human or something. But you know what? It's not that at all. It's just that the Bible says don't let these emotions dominate you and control you. I don't give in to them. You know, we just got back from Disney World. And I took, my, uh, I took Peter and Desiree and Renan, Jamie and I went. We had a great time and I enjoyed it. It was fun seeing uh, Renan do all of these things. And she was so excited about everything. She was really cute. 
And we had a great time. So anyway, here we were walking down the streets of, I think it was Epcot. And Peter says, are you having a good time? And I said, yeah, I'm enjoying this. And I, I told him I really enjoyed it. And then he says, well, you don't act excited. <laughs> you know, when you go down these roller coasters and when you did all of these rides, they take pictures of you right at, as you're crossing, you know, and beginning to go down and they take a picture and then they want to sell you these pictures. So every ride took a picture of you. And did you know, Renan was screaming, Jamie was screaming, Desiree usually had her head between her legs and just scared. And there were all these different reactions. You could have taken one picture of me sitting in a studio and it was exactly the same. I mean, here I was on a roller coaster and You know, you could have taken one picture of me and I was the same in everything. And Peter was saying something about, says, you, you don't scream. You don't, aren't you enjoying yourself? And I said, yeah, I'm enjoying myself. And he says, but you don't act excited. And I said, you know what? Seeing you raised from the dead and seeing blind eyes open and deaf ears open, that's what's exciting me. I said, a roller coaster is nothing compared to that. I said, it's not that I'm not enjoying it. It's just that I've been spoiled. My, my idea of excitement is different. When everybody left Disney World, they had this little thing on the bus, you know, that, oh, it's sad. Now we have to leave. And I was sitting there saying, thank you, Jesus. And man, I'm getting out of here and going back to reality. Man, my reality is awesome. I love what I do. I don't have to escape to get away. But anyway, my point is that, you know, what? I just, I have taken what the Lord says and I try, I'm not perfect at it, but I try not to let my heart be troubled. I believe that it's up to me and I can confuse, I can uh, control how I'm going to act. And so because of it, this is one of the main things in my life is that when tragedy happens, when negative things happen, I do not indulge those things. I don't indulge my fears. I don't embrace them. Which again is what psychology says you have to do. You And even Christian will come along and say you need to embrace your weaknesses and recognize that all of these things are positive things. I don't deny that I have emotions. I just deny emotions to dictate how I'm going to be. I indulge good emotions. I, in, I indulge joy and peace when something good happens. But I am not going to indulge anger. I am not going to fall apart. I believe that this is what the Lord told his disciples facing the crucifixion. They were going to see him crucified in less than 12 hours, somewhere around that period of time. And he says, don't be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Man, that is awesome. That is awesome. And I'm saying the same thing to you, that when you come into a crisis situation, your first response usually dictates the outcome. If you allow yourself to get into fear and unbelief and do all of these things and allow your emotions to run wild, once they have run away with you, it's very, very hard to be able to overcome that. If you are going to walk in success, one of the very first things that you have to do is grab hold of your emotions. Isn't that simple? And how do you do that? Well, the next part of that verse tells you. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You know what the antidote to fear and all these other things is? Faith. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Operate in faith. Don't indulge these things. And here's another way of saying what I've been trying to say this morning. 
is that when you allow depression, grief, sorrow, bitterness, anger, any of these negative emotions to operate, what you're doing is operating in unbelief. You aren't trusting God. You aren't believing God. God's got a promise over here that says you're going to win. In, in the instance that we're talking about, the Lord told his disciples 14 different times, I'm going to be crucified. And about seven of those times, he prophesied that I would be resurrected on the third day. And he used the analogy of uh, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. And he made it very clear. The Lord had given them promises that this crucifixion was God's will, but it wasn't the end result that there was going to be a raising from the dead. The unbelievers remembered it. The scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests remembered his promises, and that's the reason they hired these soldiers to guard the tomb so that the disciples wouldn't be able to steal the body away and claim that these prophecies came to pass. The unbelievers remembered it, but the believers forgot it. They were so overwhelmed with emotion that they allowed their emotions to run away. You know, here's another thing is that once you get into emotions, once you start operating in emotions, it just kills logic. You cannot function on the knowledge that you know, but you get to functioning off of knowledge. I mean, off of emotions. You know, when I was a little kid, we used to sing this song, Everybody Hates Me, Nobody Loves Me, I'm Gonna Eat a Worm. Big ones, fat ones, itty-bitty, skinny ones, itchy-bitchy, fuzzy-wuzzy worms. And anyway, I was using that over in England not long ago, and I said, I know you hadn't heard this. They heard the same thing. They used to sing the same thing over in England. But... Um, Anyway, what I'm saying is that all of us have been through something where somebody's offended you and you just sat there and you thought, nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. The whole world just hates me. Nothing in my life is going good. You know, once you indulge your emotions and allow that to happen, you get to functioning from emotions and you know it's not true. You know that not everybody in the world hates you, but you will go ahead and say things like that. A classic example of this is Elijah. And Elijah had, uh, you know, he prophesied this drought and then he hid for three years. And when he came back, he had, I think it was Obadiah, one of the king's servants, meet him and say, I have hid a hundred prophets of the Lord for a year or for three years in caves and I fed them with bread and water. And so Obadiah had told him that there were still a hundred prophets that were serving the Lord. But when uh, Elijah called fire down out of heaven and then uh, Jezebel wanted to kill him. And if she really wanted to kill him, she would have sent a uh, soldier with a sword, not a servant with a note. But she was trying to intimidate him. Public opinion, she couldn't do what she wanted to. But she says, I'm going to kill you and make your life like one of these prophets that you've killed by this time tomorrow. And, uh, and Elijah saw that. And he ran in fear. And then he sat under a juniper tree and he got to saying, oh, God, take away my life. It's better for me to die. You know, it's the same thing that you and I have done. I wished I'd have never been born. All these kind of things. He got into grief and pity. And finally, the Lord says, all right, go out into the entrance of the cave and I'm going to speak to you. And when the Lord spoke to him, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I've been very zealous for you. I've done all of these things. And I, only I am left of all of the people serving you. And so the Lord uh, spoke to him a second time and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And you know what? He gave the exact same answer. You know, this is not smart. If God gives you a test and then he says, I'm going to let you retake this test. That ought to be a clue 
that you probably missed the answer the first time around. You shouldn't answer the same thing. But he gave him a second test and he said the exact same thing. I, I'm the only one serving you in the Lord, says I've still got 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee. He knew of a hundred that he had been told about. But see, he was speaking out of emotions. Nobody loves me. Nothing ever works for me. Every one of us in here have done stuff like this. You've sat down and in your mind indulged negative thoughts, negative emotions. You allow them to run away and then somehow or another you make a disconnect and, and you don't see how that, that is influencing the results that you get. Proverbs 23, 7, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You cannot think unbelief and get faith results. You need to recognize that when you get angry, when you get bitter, when you're depressed, it's unbelief. It's not just normal. It's not just natural. It's not this person that made you feel this way. You've got a choice whether you become bitter or better. Nobody can make you feel anything. And you can stand up in faith, and I don't care what has happened in your life, you can grab hold of your emotions and you can start praising God. You have the ability to do that. And some people get upset when I say things like this and they're saying, so you're saying it's all my fault. That's exactly what I'm saying, amen. I'm saying that you have control over yourself and when you advocate that and say, I can't help it, this person did this and it made me act this way. Well, Jesus, again, is our supreme example. And Jesus, hanging on the cross, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He didn't say that because he felt a rush of emotions. He didn't have goosebumps going up and down his spine in some kind of a great experience going on with the Lord. He was feeling pain. He felt everything. I guarantee you Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Jesus had a temptation to hate the very people who mocked him and plucked out his beard and, and blindfolded him and then smote him and spit on him and said, prophesy if you're the Christ. Jesus had a temptation to be exactly like any one of us has ever been, and yet he refused to do it, and he chose to forgive people, not because he felt a, love, a rush of love and emotion for them. He was doing it as a choice. There's so many things you can bring to bear on this, but in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 4, the scripture there tells the older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. Again, our society says, well, you just fall in love and out of love. You can't control it. We picture this by a little naked baby that goes around and Cupid shoots people with a bow and arrow and you fall in love and you fall out of love. And I just, I don't want to do this, but you know, I can't help it. I just fell in love for somebody. Stupid. That is not love at all. It's lust. That isn't the way God's love is. That's not the way that emotions are. You can choose. You can teach yourself to love a person. You don't have to feel a rush for a person. You can choose to love that person. Your emotions are byproducts of thoughts, not circumstances. You know, I could take you today and I could lie to you. And tell you that somebody, you know, we just got a phone call in the office and your husband, your wife, your child, somebody died in a car wreck. There could be no reality to it, no physical substance, no nothing real to it. But if you thought that that was true, you would start having emotions, hurt, pain, grief. And then if you found out that we had lied to you, you would start having emotions, (laughs) anger and things like this. It's just like, you know, I've seen people put on these helmets, virtual reality. 
and they sit there and they, they show a roller coaster or something and they're doing these things. And yet you're watching them and they're sitting perfectly still. They aren't moving at all, but because they're seeing this with their eyes, they actually get motion sickness. And I've seen people throw up, get motion sickness while they're sitting still. It's all in their brain. Your physical body responds to thoughts and things like this. And if you indulge those negative emotions and stuff like that, it's going to have physical consequences in your life. And it doesn't have to be based in reality. You can, choose, you can create your own reality by standing on the Word of God and believing things. And you can cause your emotions to respond to the way that you think. And so that's what he's saying. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. If you just have some faith, you know what? You wouldn't act the way that you act. You wouldn't be up and down. And some of you have all, you've, you've been raised to think, well, this is my personality type. I'm a, I'm a melancholy or whatever these personality types are. Man, I hate those things. I hate those things. And anyway, some people just say, but that's my personality type. You know, this is the way I am. This is the way my family is. Well, then believe God and get over it. You don't have to be that way. That's wrong. You know what? You wouldn't be troubled if you'd believe God. Faith causes you to rejoice. Titus chapter, I mean not Titus, Colossians chapter 2 verse 7 says you abound in faith with thanksgiving. And it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8 that believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And on and on you could go with all these scriptures. You know what? If you're in faith, there's going to be joy. There's going to be positive emotions instead of negative emotions. Anytime you get into bitterness, hurt, depression, fear, you can call it whatever you want to, but it's unbelief. And faith would change that. And you've got to grab hold of your emotions and get into faith. You can't allow your emotions to run wild. doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Some women think, but I'm a woman. You just don't understand. You aren't compassionate. Well... You're just in unbelief is the way I look at it, amen. <laughs> Say it however you want to. Amen, it's tight, but it's right. You know, this good friend of mine, uh, Bob Nichols, he moved into this uh, building with like a hundred and something people, and he moved into a 2,000-seat auditorium. Um, that building was eventually destroyed by two tornadoes, but it was the complex was valued at $18 million dollars. So here's a hundred-member church moving into an $18 million facility. And he took on these debts and had a balloon payment. And anyway, for about a decade, he was just on the verge of losing everything all of the time. And he would go get it refinanced and then have a balloon payment. And, and anyway, it was just a struggle. I knew him during this period of time. And I heard him give a testimony about that. I mean, these financial pressures were just overwhelming him. And so one night he said that he was not going to go through the night without getting a word from God. So he went out into this field. He parked on the side of the road, went out and laid in this field in Fort Worth, Texas, and he stayed out there all night long waiting on a word from God. And he stayed there, didn't get a thing, didn't hear a thing. And finally, it was getting light. People were driving by and seeing somebody laying in a field out there, and he got conscious that, you know, he probably ought to get up. So he went back got in his car, and when he got in his car, he had forgotten, and he left the radio on. But when he turned on his car, the first thing that happened, a voice came on that says, Preacher, you don't have any problem. All you need is faith in God. <laughs> Anybody know who that was? 
R.W. Schambach. And that was one of his favorite sayings. And anyway, Bob, when he heard that immediately, he just turned the car off and that's all he heard. And he was sitting there and he thought, God, you spoke to me. This is it. (laughs) And then it dawned on him that this was R.W. Schambach. But you know what? The point had already been made. And the Lord told him, says, Bob, you don't need a special word. All you need to do is believe. Quit giving in to these emotions. And so he just started praising God and rejoicing and that he got a breakthrough. And of course, uh, now they are just super, super prosperous. It's awesome what God's done in their life. But you know, regardless of what your situation is, many times you feel justified in being upset, in being discouraged, in being fearful. There is no situation that justifies it. If these disciples going into the crucifixion and waiting on the resurrection, if he could tell his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled, then I can say, regardless of what your situation is, there is no justification for you letting your heart be in trouble, being into fear, bitterness, hurt, pain. I'm not condemning you for it. I'm saying I understand it, but I'm saying you're wrong. You have the ability to control your emotions. You have the ability to rejoice or complain. It's up to you. Nothing or no one can control you without your consent and cooperation. You need to see yourself as more than a hunk of chemicals, a physical body, and you were created in the image of God, and you can choose how you want to be. So grab hold of your emotions and don't let your heart be troubled. Instead, believe in God. Amen? And I tell you, if you'll do that, that first step, the very first thing that the Lord talked about, did you know that normally that will set the pace and nearly dictate whether you're going to win or lose based on how you respond when, when trouble first knocks at your door? Amen? But if you allow yourself to go into grief, sorrow, all of these kind of things, and then try and recover from it, I just I don't see it work. To me, it's a lot easier to stay you know, on top of things than it is to get underneath and then try and claw your way back out. That's not the way that God intended. So this is the very first thing that he told his disciples is don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm encouraging you to believe in God regardless of what comes your way. Just trust God, operate in faith and recognize that when you indulge these negative emotions, that's not faith. You need to get out of that and get into faith. Amen? Amen. Y'all receive that? Y'all do that? Yes. That's like Clifton Coulter. I was with him one time and he says, you can control your thoughts. He says, I don't, but you can do it. <laughs> Man, it's, it's better for you to, first step is you got to know that this is possible, but then you got to go out and act on it. And if you'll do that, you'll succeed. Amen. You're dismissed.